The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mompos Bolivar. That's right, five hours south of Cartagena along the Magdalena River to the sweaty, sultry, beautiful, picturesque Mompos Colonial Heritage, UNESCO World Heritage Site, where, of course, I'm here managing the two little businesses we have during this upturn for two weeks of tourism around Colombia. National tourism, of course, there's no international tourism taking place really in Colombia or I suppose around the world at the moment. But yes, we're here in Montpós and our very special guest who will be here on segment three is here with us in Montpós. His name is Malcolm Linton and you'll remember him from a podcast, uh, well, an episode, I guess a couple of years ago and we talked about his book, Metamorphosis, which was a book about the FARC, and he was there in their camps, in several camps around the south of the country, uh, taking photographs before the peace accords. Anyway, we are here with him. He's here in Montpós because together we're launching a photo photography workshop uh, so that people can come to Montpós, you know, this incredible backdrop, and also receive guidance and uh, have their photo photographs critiqued by a renowned conflict or combat photographer with experience from some of the most horrific, let's say, conflict arenas around the world. So we're going to be talking to Malcolm uh, about his his past, how he got into that, and some of the stories surrounding what it's like to be a conflict uh, photographer. Stories from El Salvador, Nicaragua, Rwanda, Colombia, and so on. So this is a fantastic episode out there. And please sign up for the photography course. It's presential, so it's on site here in Mompos in May, July, and August. We have uh, spaces open. There are some sign-ups already. And of course, accommodation is offered in either the Casa Maria in Mompos or in San Rafael Hotel in Mompos. So please have a look. Uh, the links are on our website. The links are on the Facebook page. Just look up the Malcolm Linton photography course and you'll find it if you Google that too. But you look at MalcolmLinton.com and it's on there, Mompos Workshop. Uh, please, to all of those of you out there considering supporting us, yeah, you can do so via Patreon. That's patreon.com, Columbia Calling, for as little as $2 a month. You get to help us out. Thank you to Seth Yeager, the most recent sign-up to the Patreon campaign. I hope to see you in the street again sometime soon there in Bogota, Seth. It's a great pleasure and an honor to have you supporting us. 
Uh, in the meantime, we'll pass over to Emily Hart, who's in Medellin, our UK journalist, who provides us very kindly with the newscast each week. The band is back together as the Blues Brothers say. Uh, Emily's back after some serious work and some long-form journalism, which has kept her away. And in the near future, my work from down at the border with Cucuta will be appearing in the mainstream press. I've got commissions from the Globe and Mail, hopefully the Daily Beast and others. And work was done. We, we teamed up. We joined forces. Uh, journalist Joshua Collins, who's been on the show, uh, a native of New York, he took me to Cucuta and showed me around. And so therefore, uh, yeah, it's, it's been good to work in a team for once, not just as a, a you know, a lonely freelancer. So keep an eye out for those. But in the meantime, here's Emily Hart in segment two of the Columbia Calling podcast, episode 369. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of March 29th, 2021. Columbia's Transitional Justice Court, the HEP, has reported that forced displacement has more than tripled since last year. It is the crime which has risen the most since the signing of the peace accords with the FARC in 2016. The principal perpetrators are the Clandel Golfo armed group and the ELN guerrilla forces. On the border last week, the Venezuelan armed forces began operations against a dissident group of the FARC. These operations left more than 4,000 displaced who have arrived in Colombia. The number may continue to grow as the fighting has not yet ended. It's the largest displacement due to conflict in Colombia so far this year. Additionally, this week, more than 2,000 were displaced in Cauca due to confrontations between the FARC dissidents and the ELN. A further 2,000 in Nariño were displaced due to confrontations between armed groups there. Some progress for historical justice as the Colombian state has apologized to journalist Hineth Bedoya for crimes against her by the AUC paramilitary and the failure of the state to carry out investigations into a crime which was committed more than 20 years ago. The case was heard at the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and refers to the kidnapping, torture and rape suffered by Bedoya when she was waiting to enter the Modelo prison for an interview with a paramilitary leader. She was investigating acts of violence, arms trafficking and the buying and selling of hostages between paramilitaries, guerrillas and drug, drug traffickers with the complicity of state agents. At that time, Bedoya requested protection and was rejected. It was considered that she was not at risk. The lawsuit argues that the Colombian state failed to take reasonable measures to protect her and that it re-victimized her during the judicial process, taking her statement on 12 different occasions. Though the decision is positive, the representative for the Colombian state caused outrage during the, the hearing by accusing the judges of bias and causing the suspension of the hearing for a week. The intellectual authors of the original crimes have still not been investigated. According to a survey by the University of the Andes and the campaign No es hora de callar, led by Bedoya, six out of ten women journalists have suffered harassment, persecution and stigmatization. New coronavirus cases are rising in Colombia and a third peak is feared. Many cities are reimposing measures like curfews and bans on alcohol sales, as the vaccine is rolled out much slower than hoped. Meanwhile, President Ivan Duca received a plaque of recognition from the World Health Organization for his coronavirus broadcast, Prevention and Action, which today marked one year since its first broadcast. The WHO called it an example to follow, though it has served as a useful political tool for Duca. It is not classified as a political space or an official speech, and therefore opposition politicians have no right of reply. That was this week's news. Now back to Columbia Calling with Richard McCall.
And we're back. This is the third segment of episode 369 of the Columbia Calling podcast. As I've mentioned previously, our very special guest this uh, this week is a repeat visitor, repeat interviewee on the Columbia Calling podcast. You'll remember Malcolm Linton, the British-American photographer uh, who was on, well, I guess it was last year or the year before last at some point. Uh, uh, he specialized in humanitarian causes and conflict, I would say, photographies. Uh, He's covered humanitarian crises in Colombia, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Rwanda, Sudan, Congo, the former Soviet Union. And we're on the show today here in Monpos because with my two small businesses here and Malcolm's knowledge and, and under his tutelage, uh, we're offering um, a photography workshop here in Monpos. So what better setting to have a workshop for amateurs, you know, mid-range, and you know, I would say uh, almost professional photographers to come here and enjoy this incredible setting uh, with feedback and guidance from a, a renowned photographer. So Malcolm, welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast once again. Hi, Richard. It's great to be back. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And I think in order to pitch this or, or sell this uh, uh, workshop, and we already have a sign up, uh, but in order to sell this workshop to more people out there, and we've got uh, dates in May, July, and August, I believe, uh, we've already picked out, but uh, in order to sell it, we need to know more about you, Malcolm Linton, the photographer. And I, I want to know, and I know that a lot of people out there would want to know, is how you got into photojournalism and journalism in the first place. Uh, I guess when I was at school um, and at university, I, I read a lot of novels. Um, novels by people like um, Graham Greene and John le Carre. And um, I became fascinated with the sort of itinerant journalistic life um, on the road in, in, in places, particularly in the developing world, where... Um, uh, things were more chaotic and um, less predictable than in the, the, the conventional English background that I came from. Um, and from there, it was kind of a, a, almost like a, a logical step to try my hand at journalism. Um, I didn't really want to work on local papers in England. It didn't hold any particular fascination for me. So... I took off and went to Venezuela because there was an English language newspaper there. Um, I'd previously been to Colombia um, a few years before, and I would have uh, come to Colombia to work on a paper had there been an Ang English language newspaper here, but there wasn't. So I spent uh, a couple of years in Venezuela working on a paper there, and then I came to a wedding in Colombia um, and I fell in love with the country again. I went back to Venezuela. I gave in my notice. I returned to Colombia. Um, and I set up um, as a freelancer. Um, I, first of all, I, I think I had some strings working for engineering magazines and things like that. Um, uh, and I went to see the Telegraph newspaper in England other papers. Um, I went to see National Public Radio and, you know, asked them if they were interested in having a stringer in Colombia, freelancer in Colombia, and they all said no. Um, and then the, um, the M19 guerrilla group attacked the Palace of Justice. 
and everybody suddenly was on the phone. Uh, and um, my career was kind of launched at that moment. Um, and then a week later, um, there was the enormous uh, volcano explosion, Armero. And again, everybody was on the phone. And the after effects of that, journalistically speaking, went on for several weeks. Um, and by the time those two events had worked themselves um, through, the, through the, the, the reporting system, um, I was a fixture with The Telegraph and with NPR and with CBC and was doing a little bit for BBC as well. Um, and um, for the next two years, I, I was a reporter in Colombia. Um, but during that time, uh, it, it became fairly clear to me that um, uh, I didn't have any kind of formal training at what I was doing. And, uh, and I really felt the lack of it. Um, and um, uh, I decided that the best move would be to try and achieve that somehow. So I went back to England and I, I, I found a job with the BBC. Um, and eventually I worked for the BBC Monitoring Service, which was a, an extraordinary training in accuracy. Um, and I lasted about 18 months at the monitoring service and then sitting at a desk and showing up to work every day began to drive me nuts. Uh, and around the same time, I went to visit a friend in Cuba and I just bought a new camera and um, I wound up taking pictures with my friend who was a reporter, a Reuters reporter, on a trip around the island. And he sold the pictures to Reuters. And um, at the end of the trip, I said, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to, to England and start working for the BBC again? I don't think I could stand it. And he said, well, why don't you become a photographer? So I went back to England. I worked two weeks in the office for Reuters, found I didn't like working in the office again, but I was somehow launched on a photo career. And a friend in the office said, well, the only way to really start this is, is if you want to jumpstart your career in this, go to a war. So I took off and went to Mexico. And shortly from there, I went to El Salvador. Um, and um, there was a, uh, the end of a revolution going on there. Um, and after a few days in which I almost got fired for taking lousy pictures and not really doing anything except wasting film, um, I wound up with a front page New York Times picture. And from there, things kind of developed. And then I got sent to Panama, and um, I wound up with a couple of uh, uh, Newsweek pictures, one on the cover and one on the center spread. And then the day after taking those pictures, I managed to get shot by the Americans. And that, um, that, that did wonders for my, for my kind of prestige within Reuters. Everybody assumed that because I'd been shot, I must be a great photographer. And, um, and so it kind of went on from there. 
<laughs> there's a lot to unpack in that one. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. And I think my listeners are going to say, well, yeah, okay, the career tra trajectory is fascinating, but we need to know what was the front page picture first for the New York Times? What was that one? It was in, it was in El Salvador, I assume. It was in El Salvador, yeah. Um, is it one of the iconic ones that those of us who know Central America and studied it will know? I don't know. Um, it was probably not because it was, it was sort of a, uh, it was quite a complex picture compositionally. And the, the pictures you tend to remember most easily are, are simpler compositions than that. But what had happened was that... Um, as I say, I'd spent several days um, really doing nothing but wasting film as far as the editors were concerned. And I guess I was about to be fired. Um, and I was in a fairly desperate state um, uh, in the lobby of the hotel where I was staying. And um, I heard some firing. Uh, and um, I thought, okay, I, I, I guess I better go and check that out. And somebody else whom I barely knew was coming through the lobby. And I said, can we get there? And he said, yes, I have a car. And so we jumped in his car and um, drove to where the firing was continuing to, um, uh, to was continuing. And, and, and we came to a barrier. Um, uh, there, there was a, a cordon of soldiers across the street um, and something had happened a little further up the hill, but nobody was allowed through. And there were a number of other photographers there and other reporters. Um, and apparently there was no way through. And then a medical team um, came up to the barrier and the soldiers um, allowed the medical team to go through. And for a moment, there was a hole in the line of soldiers. And I ran through the line of soldiers um, and up behind the medical team um, um, on the assumption that the soldiers wouldn't fire at the medical team. And so I managed to get up to where the incident had happened. Uh, and what had happened was that the, the, the guerrillas had occupied a house um, and an armored car had come up the road and the guerrillas had opened fire and um, hit the armored car. Um, the doors had flown open. The people inside were killed. There were bodies all over the street. Um, uh, I, I, I raised my camera to take a picture. And as I did so, one of the guerrillas appeared and ran towards me, um, pointing his gun more or less at me. Um, and at that point, I pressed the shutter. Um, and he wasn't actually about to shoot me. He wanted to know what I was doing there. But the, the image was, was quite dramatic. Um, and when I got back to the office, um, the editor went through the film, found the frame. Um, I shot it too wide because I didn't really know what I was doing at that point. So the part of the picture that didn't work was cut out and the part that was good wound up on the on the front of the uh, New York Times. Well, I, I mean, obviously the tragedy that you saw before your eyes, but it unfolded it and you got the photograph. This attitude and this, I don't know, I mean, I, you were desperate, uh, I think. You, you were about to get fired. 
Uh, I'm sure it affected you pursuing the medical team up there and you were thinking that the guerrillas weren't going to shoot at you. Did they shoot at you when you were coming up following the guerrilla team? Because The army. Thought, no, the no, army didn't shoot at okay. me. No. Because today I think you know, insurgent groups might. Um, you know, it, just, it just seems to be that the, the press is, is uh, potentially a target. But before we reflect on that, I would say this is the kind of behavior that gets you shot. And then therefore in Panama, you got shot by the Americans. But it was what happened there? Because this is what I mean, I know everyone's going, but he got shot in Panama. So what, what happened when you were shot in Panama? Well, actually, you know, um, uh, I wasn't doing anything that I thought was dangerous in Panama. Um, whereas I was quite conscious in El Salvador that I had been doing something that was dangerous. I was simply standing beside the road in Panama, outside a hotel where a number of Americans had been taken hostage by the then president of Panama's um, security forces. That was Noriega. Um, and... Uh, uh, an American armored column came up the road. Um, I think that the, um, that the security forces, the Panamanian security forces, by that time had abandoned the hostages. So they were stuck in the hotel. The, the Americans were coming up the road um, to um, um, pick them up and take them, you know, take, take, take them to some sort of secure location. Um, and there were also Americans around the hotel. Um, there was some firing suddenly from the other side of the hotel. Um, it's, it's sort of difficult to, to reconstruct what happened, um, but um, as far as I can tell, the firing freaked out the people in the column driving up the road, um, and the next thing I knew, they'd opened fire at the hotel, and I was between the column and the hotel, as were a couple of other photographers, um, and we all got hit. Um, uh, Patrick Chevelle, a French photographer, got um, wounded quite badly, got hit in the stomach. Um, uh, I got shot through the leg, um, which actually wasn't particularly serious, um, and there was a Spanish photographer who was killed. Um, uh, that was, that, so, so to, to go back to the beginning of your question, as far as I could tell, I wasn't really doing anything very dangerous. Um, and I think that, you know, as a general reflection, um, uh, the most dangerous times are often when it doesn't seem dangerous. And when it does seem dangerous, you're so aware of what you're doing. Um, that you're probably, um, you know, protecting yourself uh, um, uh, 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 quite diligently. I can understand that. I mean, I, I haven't really been in any of these situations. Wouldn't consider myself a, a conflict journalist, anything of of the type. Uh, I'm very aware of certain things. But, uh, do you think, and I have to ask because I know that people who, who hopefully sign up for this course, the, the workshop here in Montpos, uh, do you think they'll ask you questions such as, you know, what does it take? Does it take 
someone who's got nerves of steel or is, is it just this this desire to get the shot or did you just feel you were doing a job what does it take to be, become a, a photographer of, of such caliber I, I think it's different for um, it's it, I think there's a wide range of reasons for, for doing this kind of photography um, for me um, uh, photography was a way of trying to get to grips with a sort of reality that went beyond everyday worries about, you know, um, things that are relatively trivial. Um, uh, and um, I, I mean, there was definitely a sort of late adolescent desire in my case to, 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 to grasp something that was real, something that that, that involved life and death. And that was what drew me to um, combat photography. Uh, and also, um, uh, it, it, it was oddly therapeutic in, in, in a sense for me because I'd suffered from quite heavy depressions all my life. And I found that when I was doing things that were that, that, that were really frightening or that were really scary and um, uh, uh, took all my attention. Um, uh, I, I simply didn't feel, I didn't get into those sort of moods anymore. Uh, perhaps it was, you know, the extra adrenaline in my system, I don't know. Um, but again, I, I've heard other people say similar things. Um, photographers are a peculiar group of people. Um, so we all have our odd reasons for doing it. Um, as for getting frightened, um, uh, I, initially I didn't get all that um, frightened. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't particularly know why. Some people get more frightened and some people get less frightened. And um, it's interesting to me, actually, that I had a friend who's a uh, who's really a, 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 an astonishingly good photographer, um, um, very well known, um, or at least he was very well known. Um, and he used to get very frightened. Um, and actually, to the extent that people would kind of laugh at him behind his back sometimes. Um, uh, but he still produced wonderful pictures. And I ended up respecting the fact that he would continue to take pictures and continue to put himself in those situations in the knowledge that he was going to get frightened and that, and that people were going to laugh at him for getting frightened. Um, so there was a bravery that I perceived in him in accepting the fact that he would feel fear. Uh, and, and, and this friend is, can you name him? No, I'd rather not. Okay, name perfect. <laughs> well, because he came up there. What um, I want to know, because I mean, we've talked Central America, we've talked a little bit about Venezuela and Colombia then, and you were in Rwanda, Sudan, and the Congo. And I, I guess I read one book called, I think it was River of Blood about the Congo, and nothing. It's a re relatively recent book, actually, by Tim Butcher. Uh, I think he wrote for the Daily Telegraph, I want to say. Uh, great book, but nothing out of that book is positive. 
uh, out of the Congo. And I wonder, you know, when you look at the news, I mean, I don't know what kind of years that you were there in, in these African countries, but tell us a little bit about the experiences because I think some of the more... I want to say expletive, but that's not the word. I think some of the more uh, impacting photographs I've seen on your website have been from Africa. And I, I don't know if it's a, I, I can't put it into words, the sort of description I want to give. But so, I, I mean, you're there. Do you, I've often heard that photographers, you know, feel like that the camera is the, is their shield against what's going on. And, uh, it, but it must affect you taking photographs of of people, I guess, strewn on the ground or or, or AIDS victims. Or, or I mean, what were you photog photographing in these places? Uh, I was photographing mostly humanitarian disasters and wars. So, for example, um, with uh, Rwanda, I actually got there um, after the genocide. Um, and I arrived in um, the part of Congo that borders on Rwanda. Um, the Hutus, who were the people who had, who had um, massacred the other tribe, the Tutsis, um, were fleeing because the Tutsis had uh, mounted an offensive um, from Uganda and had taken over the Rwandan government and... Um, the Hutus thought that they would now be um, massacred in return. Um, and incidentally, over the years, that's, that's pretty much what's happened. Um, uh, however, at that point, there were hundreds of thousands of Hutus moving across the border, malnourished. Um, a cholera epidemic broke out. Um, thousands of people died. Uh, there were um, thousands of bodies in fields and strewn along the the roads and so on. Um, and uh, so my my job was to take pictures of that. Um, I, I suppose uh, you said the camera can be a shield. I suppose it is in a sense. I mean, you're 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 looking through the lens and you're looking for. Um, compositions of um, dead people and there's good reason to think that there's something morbid and twisted and perverse in that and there probably is uh, on the other hand at that time you know I, I felt there was a, a need to show what had happened um, and uh, it wasn't really my job um, to um, let my own feelings come into that, uh, except insofar as um, they enabled me to make images that communicated uh, um, some sort of emotion, some sort of um, empathy with the situation, I guess. Uh, sorry, I... It's I, all right, it's all right. It's... Uh I just sort of I find it, it, it this this uh, you you mentioned that you suffered um, you know, deep periods of depression all of your life and then after grappling with these humanitarian uh, disasters and conflict, surely these episodes and 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 
I mean, you know, the, the, the Hutu, Tutsi genocide and so on. Surely these bore down on you. Um, not so much, oddly. I, I don't know why not, um, but, but not so much. Um, uh, I, um, I don't tend to think about the past a whole lot. Um, I do feel um, um, strongly about, you know, the conflicts that are going on in which I'm immediately involved. I mean, um, you know, I just did this book about the FARC, um, the Colombian, largest Colombian guerrilla group. And um, I felt, I became very close to some of those people and I feel very bad about the fact that um, uh, they they really got um, got a raw deal from the government, and um, uh, a lot of them are frightened um, that they'll be killed, and some of them have been killed, um, extrajudicial killings, and those things those things really bother me, um, and. Um, uh, now I'm involved in a news story about um, people who defend the environment. Um, people like Christina Bautista would be one name that maybe people have heard. Um, uh, these are, I'm focusing on indigenous people in Cauca. Um, and I feel strongly about that conflict. And I'm trying to um, show... Uh, um, the 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 gravity of the situation that 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 those groups are involved in, but I'm also trying to 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 show that it's somehow a, a total situation. There's a that there's a problem with journalism and with with photography sometimes where um, you need to feel strongly, but it's important not to let those strong feelings um, make you partisan for one side or another. It's important to remember that, um, for example, the, 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 the conflict in Cauca is a result of, you know, a much larger political situation um, involving resources and multinational companies and... Um, uh, um, political interests, national political interests, international um, economic interests. Um, and uh, as, I, as I try to capture that conflict, um, the idea is to, is to show somehow the, the, the involvement of all of those different factors and to create a powerful emotional statement at the same time. It seem like stories of, I mean, as you say, that are of incredible importance to you. Uh, you know, and I, I've, I have the copy of Metamorphosis, your book on the FARC, and then previous to that, you've done, you'd done something which I was just reading about. I haven't seen it, though, uh, when you did the HIV-AIDS epidemic in Tijuana, and I think you, got, you won an award for that, awards, but the FARC book won an award as well, where you spent time in, in various camps prior to the peace accords. Yeah, um, the Tijuana book didn't win any prizes, um, 
but uh, but the Fark book did. Um, it won a it won a first prize in the uh, International Latino Book Awards um, last year, um, which I was pleased about because that's a, a recognized um, organization. Um, uh, and it, it put some sort of official stamp of approval on the book, which is always nice. Um, um, the previous book was about uh, HIV in Mexico, in Tijuana. Um, and uh, in a way, it had th there were things in common between the two books. Um, um, you know, the FARC were guerrillas were looked at, at as, as sort of social pariahs. Um, people who were almost less than human. Actually, they were seen as less than human by um, large parts of Colombian society. Well, well, the President Santos, when he was Minister of Defense, called them rats in holes. I mean, it's the dehumanization through language. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what was happening in Tijuana um, to the people who were um, either at risk of being infected with HIV or who were infected. Um, and those people tended to be intravenous drug users at the same time. Um, so they were really um, uh, um, uh, on the outside of society and, and they were looked at um, with total contempt by the authorities and um, much of the population there. Um, and. Uh, it, they fascinated me as a kind of group of outsiders. And so, you know, I very quickly saw um, uh, a reason to show that actually they were not animals at all, that they were perfectly ordinary human beings, um, pretty much like anybody else, except that they'd, they'd, they'd had a raw deal somewhere along the line. And it was the same thinking behind my FARC book. Um, so I suppose, you know, there was a, there was a common theme in those two. That's, I, I, I can see that. I can see that common theme and this, this sort of dehumanization, this, this, uh, this taking place. And, and, of course, the stigma surrounding both. It makes me think of, uh, and I, maybe I'm making this superficial, but the movie uh, Traffic from some years ago when uh, Michael Douglas, who was the drug star, was speaking to his opposite number in, in Mexico. And, and he goes, well, you know, um, what's, your, what's your deal with the, the addicts? He's like, well, they solve their own problem. They overdose. You know, that was the Mexican uh, general who was, the, I guess, their equivalent. And that, that made me think of that straight away is that, well, you know, that they're, they're, they're there. They're going to die. That's that's it. But let's let's move on again. OK, so, I mean, we've heard a lot about Malcolm Linton, the photographer. Let's talk about Mal Malcolm Linton, the photography workshop uh, I don't know, what do you say, guru? What, what, what are we going to see on this workshop in Montpos? What are people going to get uh, for, for their three-day stay, three-and-a-half-day stay in Montpos? Well, I guess after a while doing photography, um, you realize that it's not that hard to take pictures of people shooting at each other. Um, and... You, you begin to look for more interesting ways of doing pictures than just shooting what's right in front of you. Um, and uh, that, that 
was a kind of evolution that I went through. Um, you know, I began to get bored of my own pictures. And so I started to look, you know, much more carefully at other people's and, you know, study photo books of people, I, people I'd heard about, people I admired. And, um, uh, I mean, interesting photos um, um, most of the time consist of interesting relationships. Um, the relationship of one thing to another within the picture, um, not just a single subject that's impactful, but the way something relates to something else. I'm, I'm thinking now back to a picture, um, I guess it was from the Somali famine, um, uh, done by a f South African photographer, and it was um, uh, a malnourished baby with a, um, with a vulture next to the baby. Um, and the story goes that the photographer filed the picture to a press agency, and um, one of the papers that was linked to a competing press agency called their agency and said, have you got any other picture that, um, have you got this picture? Have you got something like this? And the editor within the agency said, oh yeah, sure, we've got something like that. We've got a picture of the baby, it's just that it doesn't have the vulture in it. Well, the relationship between the vulture and the baby was what made, made, the, made the picture powerful. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say um, you're looking at relationships to make powerful pictures. And to express yourself, you're looking at how you put those relationships together. Um, so this is a workshop about how you express yourself and the sort of ways in which you can put compositions together to create meaning and to create pictures that speak or tell stories or actually, in terms of the name of the workshop, talking pictures, talking photos, talking I'm sorry. Photos. How do you feel then, uh, Montpos, in its, you know, let's say this, uh, this, you know, this bubble in which we exist here, how do you feel that Montpos will bring forward a photographer's, uh, I don't know, what do you want to say, their inspiration? How do you feel that these relationships are, are, are expressed here in Montpos? Well, I mean, when I came to Montpost the first time, I thought, God, what a beautiful place. And um, what an incredibly easy place to take pictures. Because um, everywhere I looked, there was an interesting shape um, uh, or an interesting color or um, an interesting um, composition just, just, just right there. Um, and also... Um, uh, the people here are, are very friendly and very easygoing. So, you know, in Bogota, for example, there's a real concern about um, walking around with a camera, whether you're going to get your camera stolen or you're going to get held up. Um, in Mopos, that's not really a consideration. Um, and I noticed that as I took pictures here, people would simply ignore me. Um, and so this is a... This is really a great place 
to learn photography because it's beautiful on the one hand and there's no threat on the other. I like to think that also, given that this town still belongs to the local people and hasn't become twee, you know, like uh, perhaps some other colonial towns, that there's still the ambience and bustle of a regular coastal, uh, well, as they say here, the Costa, but an interior Costa town with the, you know, the, the regular day-to-day activities taking place, which then enable photographs. I think that that's, that's something that's pretty attractive uh, against the backdrop of some of the most incredibly well-preserved or decaying colonial architecture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's the, the town really has it all. I mean, it has this beautiful colonial center. Um, uh, and then, you know, you walk kind of 15 minutes down the road and you get into the, the, the popular section of town and there are people on the street having their hair cut and, um, you know, um, there are stores selling. I mean, there are, there are stands in the street selling fish and um, people... people standing around having conversations and bicycles passing and um, uh, all the kind of stuff that, you know, um, makes for interesting dynamic pictures full of contrasts and life um, and, um, and energy. I just get the feeling this is too demure for you uh, with your uh, you know, background of being up there on the front lines. But I think if we can somehow, if you can, you can guide people to, to you know, giving them feedback on their photography, and that's, I think, one of the ideas, isn't it? To you know, we'll take a few of, uh, of the participants' photographs and well, not criticize, but critique and say what's going on or ask for why the photographer took that photograph or why i think there's there's definitely there's definitely meat there on the bones isn't there here? yeah absolutely i mean i i don't i i i don't um i i happen to have come to photography um uh, through um reporting and through shooting combats a lot of the time um but m- much of the photography i admire um, isn't combat photography. I think most of the pictures I look at and enjoy looking at these days aren't to do with wars and disasters. Um, what they are to do with is, is contradictions, um, enigma, um, uh, magic of different kinds. Um, I mean, visual magic, um, uh, humor, um, uh, mystery, things like that. Um, and those are things that um, you can actually uh, y- y- you can learn how to do that without going to a front line um, and uh, and also y- y- you know you can you can learn to do it um, by um, playing with a number of fairly simple techniques um, and ways of composing uh photography really isn't all that difficult um it's kind of it's mystified by by camera makers who are concerned to keep selling you newer and more sophisticated cameras 
But camera technology really is pretty simple. I mean, it's a box with a hole with a lens in front and a film or a sensor behind the hole. And you can change the size of the hole, you can change the amount of time it stays open for, you can change the sensitivity of the sensor, and you can change where you point the camera. And that's about, it's, a, it's about as simple as that. And the rest is just, you know, to figure out how you get a good picture. Um, and for example, I mean, a lot of people um, get hung up on looking for the subject for a picture and chasing a subject. Well, actually, you can, you can make your life much simpler than that. I mean, if you have an idea, you can look for a background that has something to do with that idea, and you can, you can, you can frame up that background and leave a space in it. And then you can wait for a subject to move into the space. And you've already focused um, on that space. You don't, need, you don't need the world's fastest autofocus. You don't need autofocus at all. You've set your light, so you don't need auto exposure. Um, and what comes out of a picture like that is a kind of surprise, because you don't know what the subject is going to be. Um, maybe, maybe a dog will run through that space and maybe a bird will fly over and fill another space at the same time. And in a sense, the picture will create something far better than you could ever have thought of. Um, and it's really quite easy once you start thinking that way. So the idea is to, of the workshop is to help people start to think that way. Yeah, don't give too much away. We want people to sign up, of course. But, you know, I know <laughs> I want to... Before I say thank you, I have one question, and actually it's a question that comes from... Uh, it will come out of left field for you um, because I've quoted in pieces uh, across the years or have quoted to people in presentations that I've given and so on, uh, a quote by an, a, an American photographer from San Diego who was tragically killed in El Salvador called John Hoagland. And John Hoagland has that very famous quote saying, if you do something bad, I'll take a photograph of it. If you do something good, I'll take a photograph of it. Make sure you do something good. And that for me as a journalist has been something that's, that stayed with me. And I, you know, I had a fascination having spent a year in Guatemala as a, as a young man, as I can say now. Um, I had a fascination with what went on in the 80s in Central America. And so my, my thing at the end is, did you know John Hoagland back in the day? Because it's someone who's now taken on a mythical, uh, almost a mythical existence in, in, in my growth, I think, as a journalist. No, I didn't know John Hoagland, but of course I knew about him. And of course I looked at, looked at his pictures. Um, and, and he had a way of laying out... Um, pictures as if there was a kind of as, a, as if there was a kind of weird ritual to them um, I mean they were they were spooky pictures in that sense um, and um, uh, I think that, that that you know actually he, he, he captured um, what was going on in El Salvador um, uh, very precisely because it was a weird nightmarish place in in some ways um 
I mean, you, I, I saw things in El Salvador that, that seemed to come out of nightmares. Um, uh, there was a, um, there was almost a delight in physical cruelty at that time, and probably the same is true of any extreme conflict. Um, I guess there's a kind of bloodlust that takes hold with. Um, with with anybody involved in in the process of um, um, war, um, so no, I, I I didn't know him. Um, I admired his pictures, um, and uh, um, I guess you know, like a lot of photographers, he he died too young. Yeah. Well, very young. Well, I had to ask that because it just suddenly occurred to me. This is a, a man I've quoted on multiple occasions and that you were probably, you didn't know one another, but certainly trod the same roads at a certain, certain point. But uh, let's not, uh, let's not uh, overdo this. You have to sign up for the course. You can find that on Malcolm Linton's uh, website. That's malcolmlinton.com. And there's the uh, link there to the Mompox workshop and you'll see it very easily it's also on our san rafael hotel website at the moment we hope to get it on more websites i'll put it on the columbia calling page and of course it's on facebook and on twitter and everywhere else but sign up i mean it, it's going to be kind of incredible to have someone of such uh, again caliber here in Mompos guiding you around and of course offering you quite incredible feedback for for your photography and for of course your your uh, uh, as being students of photography it doesn't matter if you're an amateur doesn't matter if you're highly skilled it's it's what it's all about well you ought to say that actually there are different levels of this course also i mean you know the the there's a there's an you 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 can do the course quite cheaply um or you can pay more if you get more personal attention from me. But whatever level you're doing it at, um, I think it will enable you to take huge strides forward in you know, the way you think about photography and with any luck, the way you shoot pictures. I think it's very exciting and we're trying to evolve somewhat here in the tourism industry and we're trying to evolve as, a, a, as businesses that try and help the local economy or, or maybe just grow as businesses that hope the local economy. Let me take this moment to say thank you so much to Malcolm Linton for his time and for coming back to Montpos to, you know, I guess put the finishing touches or more ideas together now for the first uh, workshop, which will be in May. You'll find the uh, dates as well on the website. Let me just find them now. Uh, First one is 28th of May. 28th of May, that's right. I'm just trying to load it up. (laughs) But okay, well, 28th of May, we also have one in July. Here we come. Beginning of July. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, well, my internet in Montpos is special. Uh, And and then, of course, one in August. So there's already three opportunities, three dates. And, uh, you know, it it seems like a good idea. There we go. July 2nd to 4th, August 27th, 29th. But these are all on the website. Very easy to find, very easy to... um, to navigate and you've got the options of of either accommodation in the san rafael or accommodation in the casa amaria so again thank you to malcolm linton for his time and and for you know coming up with this idea and this has been a great episode of the columbia calling podcast we've heard 
right back into the history and the beginnings of Malcolm's time as a journalist, photojournalist, uh, conflict combat journalist, and, and some pretty extreme stories there. So you're getting an idea of, of what will be served up here in Montbos on those dates, because the dates are set and, and we're going ahead with them. We just need more of you to sign up. And uh, thank you again for listening. Thank you for always listening. This has been episode 369 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Uh, please be sure to tune in next week. We'll have another interesting person talking something about Colombia once again here. Bye-bye.